If y'all have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be finishing off this chapter in the second part of our series on the life of Joseph. Last week, in the first part of chapter 37, we were introduced to bad blood within the family. And that bad blood is, turn, is soon to turn into spilt blood in the chapter we're about to read. That's often how it goes. When bad blood is not addressed, when there's conflict and tension and resentment, when people start to compromise on their values, it quickly goes south. A little over 80 years ago, on November 9th, Jewish homes all around the European continent, specifically in Germany and Austria, began to be broken into. Jewish homes, synagogues, and businesses were invaded, pillaged, and looted. And the owners, the Jewish people, were dragged out. Many of them beaten, some of them killed. The ones that escaped were dragged off to concentration camps. It had come as a result of years of hatred and vitriol being built up against the Jewish people. This infamous night became known as Kristallnacht, which means the night of broken glass. And it was a night when finally all of this hatred came to a head in one moment. And in one night, irreparable damage was done to the nation as people's lives were shattered and ruined. Tens of thousands of people were dragged out and unjustly arrested and jailed in prison, and it would lead on to millions of Jews being murdered. Perhaps most tragic of all, in the midst of all of this unfolding, this barbaric, horrific act of persecution, many, Jew, uh, many Germans quietly shook their heads in disapproval, but did very little to try to turn the tide of the hatred. Many of them knew that this was not right, but out of fear of their countrymen, out of the danger of being ostracized, they just shook their heads and they were cowed into silence out of fear of what others would think of them. Sometimes a moment of compromise can cost us or the people around us for a lifetime. It's about that's pretty much what we're about to read today. In this situation, Reuben, Joseph's elder brother, had a decision to make. Let's read about it in Genesis 37. And these actions are going to have repercussions for the lives of his loved ones around him. Genesis 37, verses 12 to 36. Now his, Joseph's, brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flock near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their, way down, uh, on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, 
What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came, uh, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we ask that you would illuminate in our own lives where we, like Reuben, fall short in stewarding the things you have given to us. Father, remind us that there is a cost to when we compromise and do the things that we ought not to do. Remind us that passivity and inactivity in doing good can result in harm in the lives of others around us. Remind us, Father, that you have good planned for us even when we fall short. Lord, bring all these things to mind, Lord, as we read your word and make us to be men and women who are stalwart in our convictions, who do not compromise on the things that please you the things that you care about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, when we start off in chapter 37, verse 12, we see that Joseph is sent on yet another mission. You remember last week where we're not entirely sure whether or not Joseph was supposed to be reporting back to dad? It wasn't clear. Was he meant to be keeping an eye on them or did he just volunteer and say, you know, my brothers are messing around and my dad should know about it. Well, this time, there is no question in doubt about what happened. The father for, uh, foolishly neglected to consider that last time this happened when Joseph gave a bad report about how the brothers were do doing in their shepherding duties, that it really ruined the relationship between brothers. And can you believe it? Come on, dad. You should know better than this. He sends Joseph to go and give the assessment on how his brothers are doing. Uh, Shechem, where the brothers had gone to graze, was already a notorious location. A few chapters ago, this is where uh, Simeon and Levi slaughtered a bunch of people, right? So already it's an ominous setup here. And there's this great irony here in the text where Israel or Jacob said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are out there Come, I'm going to send you to them, right? And all right, Joseph says, I'm willing to do that. And then Jacob says, go and see if it is well with your brothers. That phrase in the Hebrew is actually for him to go and see if it's shalom, see if it's peaceful with your brothers. The irony is that in verse 4, it said earlier that his brothers could not stand Joseph and they could not talk shalom with him could not talk peaceably whatsoever with him. And so here in this great sense of, of, of uh, insensitivity, his father says, go and check if your brothers are, if it's peaceful with them. And he sends the one guy to check on them that they cannot tolerate or talk peaceably with, right? So this is a disastrous setup here. Sometimes, 
Parents, we got to be wise on how we handle our children and how we, uh, how we set them up in relation to one another. But here it's, it's already a disaster waiting to happen. And so it tells us in the text here that Joseph sets off from, he- from, from Hebron going over to Shechem. That's about a 50-mile journey. If you all could pull up my map in my notes here, Y'all will see that that's a significant distance. I know that's really small for you all, but y'all can see that even on that arrow pointing north, that that's, that's a bit of a distance to be traveling. That's 50 miles that Joseph had to walk to go find his brothers. Can you imagine walking from downtown? Imagine you're in Sundance Square, right, in Fort Worth. Now imagine you're told you're going to walk over to Plano to check on how your brothers or your sisters are doing. That is a long journey, three to four days easily, right, to make that journey. And you've really got to give it to Joseph here. He was a really good sport about it. All right, I'll take that task up, no problem. I'll make that walk. Well, when he gets there, he finds that his brothers are nowhere to be found. And it tells us that he's wandering around just looking like, where did they go? They're supposed to be here. And by God's providence, whether you view this as a good or a bad thing, I'm sure in the moment, a couple of days later, Joseph looked back on this and said, why was there a man there who sent me to Dothan? What a disaster. But there was a man there who was able to give Joseph guidance. And it tells us in the text, and you can even get it in the Hebrew, that Joseph was very urgently looking for his brothers. In the Hebrew, it says, My brothers I am seeking. When the guy asks, what are you looking for? Instead of the English where it says, I'm looking for my brothers, it starts off with the emphasis, my brothers I am seeking. There was this care, this worry about what happened to my brothers in the flock. Joseph was was urgently searching for them. And there's this great irony here that Joseph could have selfishly gone home and said, they're not here, they've goofed off, they've gone somewhere else. Had there not been a man there providentially to lead him in the right direction, you know, he he could have just went home safely. But God had another plan for him. And while he was eagerly searching for his brothers, his brothers were not so eager to see him. And so we move on here. Look, Look at what happens in the text. He goes to Dothan. By the way, that's another 15 miles away. So imagine from walking from church over to downtown Fort Worth, right? That's about probably take you a better part of a day. He goes and he faithfully tracks down his brothers. While he is eagerly looking for his brothers, they are not eager to see him. He says, uh, it tells us here in uh, verse 17, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in a distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come, let's now kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say a ferocious animal has devoured him. Here's the plot. Joseph is coming to try to find his lost brothers. His brothers, when they see him, are planning to make sure that he gets lost permanently from his family. What a tragedy. They say, here comes this dreamer. That's a reminder that there's a, the source of this resentment is in part because of Joseph's own indiscretion here, his own mistakes. The Hebrew here says, here comes the Lord of the dreams, Baal, Lord of the dreams. This this guy who thinks he's so great and prestigious. It reminds that Joseph in his audacity has really poisoned the relationship with his brothers and they hate him for the privilege and honor that he receives. There's no mention here of who first planned this murder. Right? It just says that they did it together. And it was likely the case that this was a brewing of the mob. That maybe it started with a few brothers saying, yeah, this guy is such a pest. I can't, can you believe he's here to check on us? This guy who's younger than us is here to try to give a report to dad. You remember last time he gave a bad report to dad about us? What a jerk. Right? And here he comes with his, with his fancy little robe. You know, coming down to be authority over us. And it probably started as one bitter comment that led to another. And that began to snowball and embolden the hatred of the fellow brothers. Probably what one person might not have been willing to do, suddenly a group of brothers felt emboldened to do. You got to watch out when 
when negative sentiment begins to build upon the other. Whether you're talking with a friend or a classmate or whoever it might be, it's easy to do that, to pile on. Whether it's about your insufferable boss or the fact they gave you this assignment or the way that someone is handling themselves in the church or what your neighbor did with your fence, it's easy to begin to vent. Here's our first point for today. Speaking of compromise, compromise begins with our hearts. Before they ever get to lifting a hand to seize Joseph in their own hearts, they already compromised in terms of being loving brothers. We don't, if we don't address the sinful desires of our hearts when they crop up, those things will inevitably stew and build and even can lead to something where brothers are willing to go after another brother's life. That's what happened with Cain and Abel, as we talked about last week. So whether those are desires in our hearts that are jealous or angry or prideful, desires for control to be right in a situation, whether those are desires of lust or laziness, they're all conceived first in the heart. And compromise first happens here for the Christian. There's no area that you're going to compromise in life that you don't first go through a process of compromising here in the heart. It's exactly what James chapter 4 verses 1 to 2 tells us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You crave what you do not have. You kill and covet because you are, and you are unable to obtain it. That is exactly what is happening here, isn't it? His brothers so desperately want the affection and attention that Joseph has. And what happens? In order to chase that down, they're giving in to their desires that are waging war against them at that time. And they're finally settled with, if we can't have it, let's forcibly take it away from this brother. Maybe then it will be given to us. Obviously, in the rest of the text, we see that doesn't happen. When these unrighteous desires that we have in life take hold of our heart, they need to be addressed. You leave them alone and they begin to fester. The same is true for relationships. When negative, ungracious thoughts begin to spread, they need to be nipped early on because left unchecked, those embers of, of dissatisfaction, embers of anger or resentment can turn into a burning fire. Right? And that's what we see happen here. I remember when I was living with my housemate in college, we, um, we had a lot of complaints towards our housemates, the, the non-Christian ones. The two of us were the only believers in the house but frequently on a night, our conversation would revolve around complaining. Man, can you believe that guy is leaving all his dishes out again? Can you believe how much noise he makes, how he brings people over without asking the household and they stay till 2 or 3 a.m.? And before we knew it, we just had this overwhelmingly negative view towards them. And I played a part in stirring him on, my housemate, on this. Then there was one night that came, this clear, vivid moment of self-reflection where my housemate, fellow Christian, said to me, man, I, I look back on how I was treating our housemates recently, and man, I'm embarrassed. I, I, I feel so bad for the things I've said and the way that, that I've talked to him and the, my attitude towards him. And I remember feeling in my own heart this responsibility. I... I fed the fire. I threw twigs, branches on the heat in that moment. I fed the heart issue that he was going through. And I was a part of it. I had a heart issue too. And I realized that there was an intervention that should have been given on my part as a loving brother. To say, hey brother, you remember for the fact that God has put you and I here. We were excited to live with these guys initially. You remember that you and I realized that we had a chance to be a witness to them? You remember that you and I were praying for their salvation, right? I should have done that, but I fed the fire. I compromised in the heart, and I fed those negative feelings and emotions. Reuben's intervention with his brothers, later in the text he tries, it should have started earlier while his brothers were stewing and venting towards one another. Brothers and sisters, if we love each other, we're not going to give in to these negative emotions that we have towards one another. If we love our families, we're not going to feed those, those, the, the areas of bitterness and hurt. We're going to 
We're going to minister to them and remind each other that we have a source of grace and forgiveness to take hold of, and we need to turn to it. By the time Reuben tried to address his brother's actions, their hearts were already too far gone. Remember, compromise starts and it begins in the heart. The bitterness over Joseph's earlier sharing of his dream is showed once again here, right? The fact that they, they, they keep holding this grudge. That guy had that wicked dream and they, uh, this evil dream. And they, it says that when they make their plans, they say at the very end to it, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Notice here that they are determined to make sure that what Joseph aspired for did not come to pass. Bitterness was lodged in their hearts. When enough dark and toxic thoughts fill our hearts or minds, we can be led to do things that we never think we would do. You know, I don't think it ever crossed the minds of the brothers that they would kill their own kin. I promise you they never thought of that years past. I promise you that Cain never thought to kill Abel. But when the heart gets poisoned for long enough, it boils over and it comes out. A lot of us know what that's like when we, when we have been pent up to the point where it just overflows and blows up and we say something that we can't take back or we do something that irreparably harms a relationship. Folks, if we compromise in the heart, we're allowing something to fester and build that will eventually turn into something that we can't even control. Sometimes relationships are like a ceramic bowl. In my family, we have this set that, we, that I really like. I don't think Virginia cares that much. It's a weird thing I care more about than she does. It's a nice set of four bowls, four cups, four plates, all matching, right? There was one day where I was putting them up and not careful, and one of them slipped out of hand, hit the, hit the counter, and shattered, right? I looked down at it, and I was so frustrated because, well, now you'll never have a full set <laughs> when you're hosting. Uh, if you ever come over and we have you for dinner, if everyone's got mismatching plates and bowls, it's because, well, there's one missing. And I'd rather have just diverse ones and have one sticking out that doesn't belong there. But you know what? No matter how hard I would want to piece that thing back together, it was never going to be the same. In Joseph's relationship, his brothers had already reached the point where they were about to do something that could not be taken back. And folks, if you might be there today, where you're in a relationship that's so contentious and fractured that you feel like there could come a time where you do something that you can't take it back, I just want to warn you to address the heart issue before it's too late. Don't let it keep going. Bring it to light. Bring it to the Lord. And so Reuben comes in now with the compromise. Here's the focus. The compromise already happened in the hearts, but here comes the actual physical compromise. Reuben tries to intervene and says, wow, we are going way too far here, guys. Reuben heard this, it says in verse 21. He tries to rescue Joseph from their hands, and he says, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Let's just throw him into the cistern. He says, come on, guys. He's our own flesh and blood. This is way too drastic. Let's toss him into the well. And I think the idea here that Reuben was trying to pre present to his brothers that, is that why lift your hands to kill him? Just throw him into there and let him die. Let him starve. Let him die of thirst. Don't lift your hands to spill the blood yourselves. And actually, in Jeremiah, there, in Jeremiah 38, there's a similar account where they throw Jeremiah into a cistern or a well. Right, and, and they just intend for him to, to die of thirst. Now, Reuben's intention is that I'll come back later. This way, if I put it this way, I don't draw the ire of my brothers. They don't realize I'm trying to foil their plans. This way, I can play both sides, right? Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. Hate this guy. Can't stand him. Throw him in the well. Let him rot. On the other hand, he knows that's, I got to intervene here as the older brother. I got to step in, right? And Reuben had, at this point, he's trying, to, he, he's trying to lead as best as he can. The truth of the matter is, Reuben already forfeited his leadership in the previous chapter, right? When he went and uh, slept with his father's concubine, he had already destroyed any integrity that he had. Yesterday's forfeiture of character will haunt us in the days to come. That's the truth. Reuben really couldn't lead well, he probably regretted his transgression earlier and 
probably wanted to try to do the right thing in this case. I've already botched it with dad. I can't stand to lose my father's prized son in this situation. But notice that he didn't address the issue head on. He compromised. He said, well, let's just throw him in there and let nature take its course. He didn't tell him, guys, what you're planning is crazy. You don't kill your own flesh and blood. You don't kill dad's favorite son. You don't break his heart. You don't put more blood on your hands. Reuben, as the older brother, should immediately have stepped in and said, guys, that is lunacy. Let's get away from the thought. Let's repent. But he compromised. He said, ah, let's, let's do this in a way that doesn't rile the, up the brothers. Let's do this in a way where I can seem like I'm still part of them. And here's the key point, number two. Compromise shows itself in partial and delayed response to what we know is right. Compromise in our life shows itself in partial and delayed response to what we know is right. Reuben knew that this should not happen. This should not go down this way but he only partially tried to address it. And he tried to delay the rescue. Do you realize in that moment, Reuben could have run out to Joseph and said, hey, we don't need you here right now. Go home, go home. You don't need to be here. He could have, he could have even for Joseph's sake said, look, nobody is happy to see you, bro. Nobody needs to see you in your coat. Go home, right? Saved his life right then and there. But he was afraid. What do my brothers think? They're, they're raving mad here. They want to kill. They want blood. How do, I, how do I step in and just partially diffuse the situation? Maybe I'll obey and I'll come back and I'll rescue him later. And the text tells us we don't know where he goes, but he disappears for a while and then comes back to try to be faithful. Well, friends, when that happens, it's already too late. He failed to address the hearts of his brothers. He failed to intervene in the moment to save Joseph and irreparable damage comes. In that moment when he could have intervened, he deferred and said, yeah, let's just, let's just do it halfway. And his partial and delayed response to this crisis unfolding in front of him devastates his family for years to come. Folks, I don't mean to be overly dramatic with you, but there are certain points in our relationships that we have where it gets to a very tense or a breaking point. And in those moments, we've got to decide Am I going to be someone who compromises on doing what is right and reconciling and pushing for de-escalation and apologizing and holding back? Or am I just going to kind of half stand my ground, half engage in reconciliation, half pursue the other person? Folks, it devastates their family. It was never the same and again, same in the future. In our homes, when we try to teach our children I'm not going to name any names anymore. My wife keeps telling me, stop <laughs> talking about your children. But y'all probably know who I'm talking about. But in our, in our family, we've been trying to do a sticker system to reward immediate obedience. That it's a really good thing that when you hear it the first time, you say, yeah, I'm going to obey. And folks, it took us so long to get to this point where we really started to address it. But for so long, we were just okay with trying to say it, saying it again, starting to use threats, and then escalating the threats. Folks, that's a horrible way for us to teach our children. That, that you have to be cajoled and you have to be uh, convinced and threatened finally into obedience. Folks, sometimes that's us with the Lord and it ought not to be. Delayed obedience, as the old saying goes, is disobedience. In our lives, if God has put something on our hearts that we need to deal with, Let's not delay. Let's not compromise. Let's not put it off. Let's not model for our children that we obey only when it becomes pressing enough, when, when it's only gotten bad enough that we finally say, okay, I got to step in. That's what happened with Reuben, right? It's already bad that they're plotting to kill and he could have redirected then, but only when they're finally like, okay, we're actually going to do this, guys. Reuben's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's take a step back. Let's not do, delay our obedience Ultimately, I want my children to respond willingly and swiftly to God, to not have to wait till things have gotten so dire that is at a breaking point. In our opening illustration, we saw that initially many German citizens half-heartedly rebuked or disapproved of what was happening in their country. 
But no one was willing to really step in and say this is unacceptable, and we will not tolerate this from the government. There were a few, by the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you read Cost of Discipleship, there were a few who stood in the gap, and it cost them greatly. But when we delay for long enough, you get a case like in Germany where it comes to a point where any outspokenness results in a jailing. And that's what's about to happen. It's going to get to the point of no return. And the unimaginable happens. It tells us that a caravan comes their way. Uh, It's a caravan of Ishmaelites, and then it refers to them as Midianites later. Don't worry about it. That's not a conflict in the text. It could be that it was an Ishmaelite caravan, in fact, in, in that most of the people there were Ishmaelites. Could be that there was a group of Midianites amongst them. At that time, it was dangerous on the trade routes. You travel alone or uh, in uh, undefended territory and you could get plundered. Well, if you go with a caravan of people, maybe partnering with people of different backgrounds, you'll be safe. Could be some Midianites were going along and those, those were the brokers, the salesmen could also be that it's just a way of addressing a certain demographic of the Ishmaelites. Uh, If you remember, Midian was among the rejected sons of Abraham born to Keturah. After Sarah died, he had taken another woman and, and had a bunch of children and they got exiled out. That's why they have bad blood with the Israelites. But in any case, that's not an issue, right? This group of ish, distant relatives to uh, Jacob uh, come along. And it's a reminder even there, by the way, when it brings up Ishmael, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, reminds you of that conflict between brothers, Midian as well, family conflict all in the background here. It tells us that Judah, a sharp guy, uses his mind for something real wicked. Thinks to himself, why let him starve here and die? That doesn't get us anything. Why not sell him? Why not trade away his freedom to our own benefit? Can you believe as someone reading the Bible that knows the promises of the line of Judah, the lion of Judah is going to come out of this guy. Can you believe how wicked, how heartless this man is? It's a reminder once again that when we give our minds and our hearts to this negativity, this dissatisfaction, this resentment, it can result in such depravity. They say, why don't we sell our brother? Do you know how much they got out of him? They got 20 Shekels of silver. That's eight ounces of silver. A conversion today would come out to be about $200, about $10 per shekel of silver. Can you imagine if your siblings sold you out for life for $200? This is, this is a travesty. Can you imagine how horrific this account is for Joseph, right? So you get thrown into a well, they steal your cloak, They laugh at you probably and curse you while they throw you down. Then they leave and they're eating outside, maybe with the rations you brought them. You're left to starve and and die of thirst. They're eating and drinking out there. And then they come over and toss you a rope and you think, oh, phew, they came to their senses and they're not serious about leaving me here. Right? And they pull you out of that cistern or well and you get to the surface and there's a group of traders next to you. And you begin to wonder, and the terror sets in, what are, they, what are they doing? And then they bring you and probably bind you up so you can't resist and bring you to these traders and say, they tell the traders how much you want for him. And he thinks this has got to be a cruel joke. No way they really go through with this. And sure enough, they push you into the arms of your captors and you're dragged off in a caravan to a place that you do not know. It is... An unbelievable turn of events. Can you imagine the protesting that he's saying, what are you guys doing? Please, you you can't do this to me. Can you imagine the pleading, the weeping of Joseph as he is taken away? When we compromise, it can destroy the life of another. It was a betrayal that no one should ever have to live through, much less at the hands of family. It's a type of betrayal that haunts a person for life, that keeps you up at night. And I can't imagine even what it would be like to have to wrestle through that. Not not one or two of my brothers set this up. The whole lot of them were in on it. And they would do such an evil thing. Can you fathom the anguish, folks? The type of damage we can do to another person's life when we compromise and we give in to evil thoughts, angry thoughts, jealous thoughts, is not to be underestimated. Consider Reuben's regret now. 
Reuben is actually not there when this happens. It tells us that he comes back, uh, doesn't tell us where he was or what he was doing. Maybe he thought if I leave for a while and come back, they'll be doing something else and I can get him out of that, that cistern or well and it'll be safe, right? And so it tells us here in verse 29, Reuben returned to the cistern, saw Joseph was not there. The text in the Hebrew says, behold, no Joseph, right? It is this dramatic moment where he peers in and says, all right, brother, I'm gonna get you out of there. Hang on. And he looks down, no brother. And then he begins to panic. And he goes back to his brothers and he says, uh, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And then probably his brothers let him in. Hey, here's your cut of the $200. I don't know what that comes out, like, you know, 15, 18 bucks. Here you go. Can you imagine the remorse of Reuben? Can you imagine the thoughts of, of terror of facing his dad and owning up to the fact that he, as the oldest brother, did not intervene soon enough or strongly enough? He goes back and he calls him, the boy is not here. Finally, they recognize, someone recognizes, this is a vulnerable youth. Earlier, he was wandering the fields without without knowing where to find his brothers. This is a young guy, even 17 years old. Finally, someone's conscience kicks in in this moment, but it's too late. It's too late. You got to feel a little bit bad for Reuben here. He didn't want to go down this way. This wasn't his plan. He wanted to do the right thing. He knew what should have been done. Sometimes, folks, when you don't do what you ought to in the right moment, it becomes too late to act. This is a truth that we need to remember in our lives. Don't always think that I can always obey later. Don't always think I can apologize later. Don't always think that I can mend things later. Sometimes we're not afforded that luxury, and Reuben was not. Reuben had the chance to jump in, intervene when he, in, in the moment, but after going and doing his own thing and coming back, it was too late. Joseph was already on the way to Egypt. It was too late. The money was in hand. And he had no choice but to go with his brothers to now carry out the rest of the plot. And by the way, this probably utterly destroyed his brother's view of him. Do you know what it tells his brothers when they see him lament in the moment he finds out that Joseph is gone? It tells them that you were never going along with this plan fully. It tells us that you had a conscience in all of this. It affirms to them that what we did was wrong but you didn't do anything in the moment, that you put it off. It tells them that you are duplicit. On one hand, you wanted to pretend to be like us. On the other hand, you were secretly trying to save him, maybe to gain back your favor with your father. Whatever character or integrity that Reuben once had, it was destroyed, and that's what compromise does. Compromise destroys our integrity and our trustworthiness before others. And Reuben understood that his relation with his dad was already on thin ice. Now it was going to be shattered. He understood that the damage done to his father was probably irreparable. That's why he says, uh, he says uh, where, where do I go? Where can I turn now? In verse 30, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn? It's this lament that it's all over. It's all over. Whatever life he was supposed to lead as the firstborn son, whatever honor and prestige Recognition he was meant to have, all of it was gone out the window. And by the way, in the text that follows, Reuben never again takes up a prominent role, right? If we're responsible in a situation for others around us, and by the way, as Christians, God gives us that privilege. We need to be careful to steward that opportunity well. Reuben had the chance to be the older brother, to be a voice of reason, to be a peacemaker, to be a rescuer for his younger brother. Joseph would never have forgotten his brother's kindness if he had intervened. But he compromised and it cost him his integrity, it cost him his reputation, it cost him his status. And sometimes one moment of compromise can cost us our witness. I think I've shared it before, but I'll share it again. When I was in college, there was a time where, as it is in almost every dorm, someone brought back the booze into the room. And they invited all the guys to come out and have a little drink. Right? And by the way, I'm not saying that any drinking of alcohol is sinful or wrong. But in that moment, I had this thought that, you know, this is probably a good chance to stand for, you know, our values and kind of show that we are different from them. I was roommates with that same friend I told you about earlier, that the housemate that was fellow Christian. 
But after a lot of peer pressure from them, and they said, hey, we're, we're all hanging out. Come on, man, it's not a big deal. Our housemates or our roommates from next door are over. We're playing a few games. It's just a few drinks here and there. I gave in to the pressure and said, all right, guys, let's, sure, you know, one or two drinks. What's the hurt in it? And I remember turning to my housemate and trying, trying to get him to come along with me. And I said, hey, man, that, hey, everyone's going. Why don't you come join us? He said, no way. I said, can, can you at least moderate the game for us that we're playing? I don't remember what game it was. doesn't really matter. But you know, I was doing anything I could to bring him along. And he said, no. And he got angry and said, no, I'm not going with you. Stop pressuring me. And I remember at the time thinking, what am I doing? Why do I care so much that he comes? And I realized that in my own conscience, there was this nagging that he is standing for something that I should be doing. I did damage my witness that night. I don't think that I got drunk. No one ever says that they do. But in the moment of that time of indulging with these guys and just messing around, having fun, I gave up part of my witness as to the separation between the Christian life and the world's values. I showed that I just want to have a good time just like you guys. Count me in, right? My friend held on to his witness. Yeah, he seemed like a stick in the mud, sure, right? But at the end of the day, they knew that he stood for something, that he had another set of values. It's not worth it. Not worth it to give up our witness. I lived with these guys later. That's why we were housemates. And as I mentioned earlier, we had a pretty toxic relationship. No wonder I had such a hard time ministering to these men that, hey guys, listen, there's this message of hope and love in Jesus Christ and how he transforms our lives, but fell on deaf ears. Not necessarily just because of that moment, but certainly that moment did no favors in confirming my witness. Reuben allowed the fear of his brothers from keeping him from doing what he should be doing. Folks, don't be a, a, don't be a people pleaser in your life. I know that I have this tendency. Don't worry so much what others are going to think. Don't allow others following their desires change the course of your desires. Reuben had the right thought. I don't want to have blood on my hands. I don't want to have to face my dad about this. But he compromised. He allowed his own past failures to paralyze him. You know, have you thought that it was probably true that Reuben had no place to say, hey guys, this is, this is beneath us. We should be better than this. It's true. He had no place to say that, right? He had messed with Billa, you know, father's concubine. But you know what? In the grand scheme of things, that shouldn't have mattered. Whether or not he was qualified to speak truth, he ought to have. Ought to have. And I want to, I want to, caution you all. Sometimes the enemy is going to tell you you're not fit to lead. Your example is not on point. You've failed and you'd be a hypocrite for bringing something up. But if we will bring it up with humility, if we bring it up with, with gentleness, if we bring it up with the right intention, the point is to honor the Lord. It's not about us. Reuben could have said, guys, let me tell you from first-hand experience, it is not worth it to trade away your integrity, to trade away your relation with your dad. Take it from me. I've been there. You see, there's a way to tell people, even when our own life standard hasn't lived up to what it should be, to still encourage and exhort. But it takes humility. It takes swallowing our pride. But he allowed for compromise. He procrastinated and waited on doing what he ought to. And the chance to make it right didn't come back. And so they took a goat. They turned it into a scapegoat and butchered it, poured out its blood, wiped it all over the clothes. And then they deviously bring it back to their dad. They don't say, hey, Joseph got killed. They, they set up the scenario with enough evidence and they let their own father deceive himself, right? They didn't say a wild animal shredded him. Here's the blood. They said, hey, look at this coat, dad. Does it belong to your son? Not our brother, your son. Right? And the father obviously concludes, oh my goodness, I've killed my son. I, I've sent my son out on this 50-mile journey and a wild animal got him. Can you imagine how cruel this is to allow a father to think that he murdered his own son with negligence? I, he was negligent. He sent his son into a terrible situation, but the death, was, or the supposed missing son, the supposed death was not on his hands. 
His sons allowed him to bear the guilt and shame of condemning his own son. Unbelievable. Unbelievable until you remember Jacob himself is quite the deceiver. You remember that he played the same type of trick on his own father. He told his old father, hey, look at this. Look, his father was nearly blind. He said, touch this garment, smell it. Whose garment is that? Oh, that's the hunter's garment. Smells like Esau. And then he took something from a goat, not blood, but the goat's fur. And he said, feel this. Oh, yeah. Feels like my son. What a hairy guy, right? All right. Let me give you my blessing. As horrible as this development is, folks, you can't say Jacob did not deserve this. He had deceived and lived by deceit, and now he was reaping deceit. Karma is not real. It's not an impersonal force out there that balances the universe. What is real, folks, is a just God. A God who sees our, sees our lives, our hearts, and our actions, and is just to repay both good and evil, right? Whatever the siblings hoped to achieve, by the way, did not work. It tells us in the text that his father mourns over the, he tears his clothes, he puts on the sackcloth, he mourns. Both his sons and daughters come to comfort him and he refuses the comfort, which is weird for that time. Normally, as you grieve and mourn, the practice is others come alongside you to lift you out of that grief. He said, no, I do not want to come out of my mourning, my grief right now. And who could fault him, right? Feeling like he condemned his own son to death. Right? And, and at the very end of it, he says, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Here's the great irony. His sons think if we can remove Joseph far enough from dad, then we can finally have his affection. But they didn't realize that you can remove Joseph far as you want from dad. You can never remove the affection that dad has for his son. And while Joseph was gone by many, many miles he took this immortalized place in Jacob's heart. And here's the other irony. In years to come, this would only solidify Jacob's favoritism and protection over Benjamin. Y'all heard of helicopter parents that like don't let their kids do anything? Jacob was that times a hundred with Benjamin. I'm not letting that guy out of my sight. I'm not losing this last son. Right? And so in a, in a weird way, his brothers actually made things worse, set up even more clearly the father's attention onto Rachel's children in all of this. Right? So it's not like they got in their way at the end of this. But at the end of the text, we see Jacob is a shattered father. He's inconsolable. He's miserable to the point of death. And Jacob probably replayed the decision over and over in his head. Why did I send him? Why did I not think through putting him on that journey. Sometimes we feel that way. We replay a decision that we regret, some area where we've compromised, right, over and over in our head. For Jacob, he compromised and playing clear favorites. And we think, what if I had done things differently? Last and final point, compromise will cost us and our loved ones terribly. Four areas, sorry, three areas that it costs us. Number one, it costs us our character. We already talked about this. When you compromise, the world around us looks at our lives and say, you're not the real deal. For the Christian, they see you're another hypocrite. For the family member, they say, you're just like that person you were 10 years ago. Be careful about compromising in your character. Christians, before your classmates and in your workplace, don't trade away your Christ-like reputation. It's not about looking good or building yourself up but you're put there to show the world that there is something different in the lives of those who walk with Jesus, who look like Jesus, who serve like Jesus. Once you lose that reputation, it is so hard to regain. Stay above reproach in your workplace, among your classmates. It's easy to want to give in just a little bit, to cut a corner on assignment, to, to, to join in with the rest of your coworkers and maybe talking about someone else or tearing down your manager. Folks, beware if you're in school of taking the easy way out. I remember seminarians, you have these assignments, some of the hardest assignments to have integrity are, and those simple ones like, how much did you read? And you say, I know I didn't read 50%, but maybe it was like 60, 70, 80. Maybe I'll read it after I turn in the assignment. Ever been there? Do you have 
the integrity to put zero or 10 or 20? I mean, come on, at least read five minutes and save 1%, right? How many of you have math uh, class and you got solutions in the back of the book? You know, and you know you didn't do your homework, you didn't work through them, but you turn to the back and you reverse engineer all your problems, right? And sometimes it's okay to do that if, if the assignment is not meant to be one where you can't look in the back. But folks, something like that may seem like a small compromise. Oh, it's not a big deal. When we start yielding our integrity in one area, it weakens your resolve in the future. I have already cheated once. I've gotten away with it once. I've talked about someone once. And it becomes easier and easier. Parents, in day-to-day actions with our kids, right? They, they can see how truly committed we are. Don't trade away our integrity to tell our children, hey, you know, mommy and daddy, we worship the Lord on our own. We spend time praying. We get into the word. For all the things that my parents may have fallen short in, they did not fall short in their own walk with the Lord. And I knew that my dad was someone who got up early in the morning and prayed for his people and, and went off early on to do ministry, no matter how hard things got. If our parents are to see, or if our kids are to see that we are consistent men and women that really believe in the book, that believe in our God, they need to see that consistency come out in our lives. So obviously it costs us our integrity. Number two, compromise will call, cost us our calling. For Reuben, it meant that he forfeited his role as the firstborn. For us, it means that we can forfeit our witness in the workplace. It can mean that we forfeit our authority as a, as a teacher, as an engineer, right? As a mechanic, whatever it might be. It means that we can forfeit our, 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 our trust as an older sibling in the family. Husbands, it means we can forfeit our trustworthiness as the shepherds of the home. We need to be careful Compromise may cost us our calling. God calls us to be peacemakers in our friends' lives, our families' lives. He causes us to be people that push others and spur them on towards the truth in the church. He calls us to be people that are witnesses in our community. But folks, we can lose that, the effective witness, if we're not careful. And it may cause, cost us our effectiveness in serving the Lord. Finally, compromise will cost us our loved ones in their suffering. And this family was forever damaged because of Reuben's poor choice in this moment. I want us to think about in our own families, are there people that have suffered because of our willingness to compromise? Have I affected my sister, my brother, my mom, dad, my younger siblings? I don't have any. Or maybe my younger brothers and sisters in the faith? Is there an area that I've lived my life that has made it permissible for someone else to live the way they ought not to? Did I forget that there was a weaker brother, a weaker sister in the church? Have I put a wedge between me and someone else, right, because I wanted to be right in an argument? Compromise costs us our relations. It makes others suffer. Finally, we see here Joseph is sold to the highest bidder, right? The Midianites sell, sell him to these uh, Egyptians, not to any old person, but a man of relative prestige, the captain of Pharaoh's very own guard. Here's where the miserable ending takes on a little glint of hope. While Joseph is traveling probably heartbroken, can you imagine trying to meet the people that are going to be your masters for the rest of your life? That's probably a very nerve-wracking thing. By God's providence and grace, he gets brought into court royalty. People that have Pharaoh's attention and eye. And it would be very important for in the days to come, Joseph would know, need to know the etiquette. He would need to know the inner workings, the way to interact amongst the elite in Egypt. God was already working a plan out for Joseph. Have you ever thought that God may have taken Joseph out of a bloodthirsty family that probably would have no good ending in the future. That even if Reuben dissuaded his brothers this time, do you think there might have come a time in the next 20 years when inheritances and birthrights were giving out that there might have been another chance that his brothers would try to kill him? God, in some way, removed Joseph into safety for a time. It was painful. It was wilderness. But for a time, he could be free from the jealousy and the threats of his brothers. 
And most importantly, God was bringing him to a place where he was no longer under the care and protection of his earthly father. And he had only the heavenly father to depend on. Some of you here today, God has taken away the thing that you've held on to for support, the person that you've trusted in. Maybe they've compromised and they don't have your trust anymore. Maybe they were removed because they moved. You, you moved. They're no longer in the picture. Maybe friends or close people to you have gone from one place to the other. Can I just encourage you that you're never abandoned as someone who walks with God? He is only leading you on a journey away from those that you've loved and trusted and he's teaching you to depend on him, to learn that he is enough to sustain you. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to uh, try to look to others that God himself is sufficient. Maybe you feel like Reuben today. And I understand it's been a heavy sermon. It's been not a lot of encouragement in here. Listen, maybe you feel like Reuben. You know you botched it with previous opportunities that God has given you to be faithful. Know that our God is a God of redemption. Even in this narrative, this setup is to save the whole family in, gen uh, in years to come. This is a part of the Exodus journey for God to show a glimpse, a reflection of the gospel to the world. That these people would be in Egypt and in bondage and God by his mighty hand would rescue him through his own power, reflecting the gospel clearly in the Old Testament. This would be one of the ways that, that ultimately God would, would give a glimpse of what Jesus Christ would go through. Remember that Jesus, like Joseph, was sent on a journey far from his heavenly home. He was sent to people that did not love him and rejected him. He was sent to a people that conspired to kill him. He was sent to people that should have loved him, his own disciples, and sold him out for 30 pieces of of silver. He was sent ultimately to die on a cross to pay the penalty for something that he had not done. Just as Joseph was innocent in this situation, unless you count pride, I guess pride is something, but at the end of the day, it doesn't warrant getting sold into slavery. Joseph wasn't totally innocent of all things. Jesus was. Jesus did not unwillingly get bound and taken to Egypt, so to speak. He went to the cross fully aware of his guiltlessness, but determined to save his people, even as Joseph would be used to save his family in the future. Jesus understood what he would do to sacrifice himself for us, would save us from our sins. So if you feel like you're someone that compromises easily, if you feel like, man, day to day, I'm someone who, who, who neglects the use of my time, if you feel like I am someone that gives in easily to angry, bitter, negative thoughts, if you feel like I am someone who is quarrelsome and I can't get along with people that I should have, if you feel like I am someone that gives in to greed, I give in to lust, I give in to all these areas where I easily compromise, can I just remind you, the point of the gospel is that we are people that are compromised, but we have a Savior who never did. Jesus Christ never sinned. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God in whom there was not a trace of unrighteousness. Jesus never compromised, and this is the truth that we need to hold on to when we feel down and overwhelmed by the weight of our own sin. When you feel miserable about yourself, take shelter in the fact Jesus didn't compromise. God did not compromise. He loves me. That is unchanging. God's attitude to me will never change. He is not going to compromise on how he cares for me. And though he may discipline me for a time or lead me through the valley of the shadow of death like Joseph had to go through on the way into slavery in Egypt, my God is in the works. He sees through my brokenness and he is able to bring good out of evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus Christ is truly our living hope. He is that cornerstone that we need to take hold of when compromise inevitably comes. I'm not saying, guys, hey, free license, just go mess it up because Jesus got you covered. Obviously, we don't want to destroy our own life. And a lot of times, just as with Jacob, God teaches us, right, through consequences. 
I have no doubt that later when Jacob found out he had been fooled, do you not think he probably looked back and said, oh man, what I did to my brother, what I did to my dad, yeah, Lord, I feel it. I feel the sting. I get it now. Lord, I get it. Now, we don't want to go through undue hurt in our lives. But when we inevitably mess it up, when this week you catch yourself and you're like, I just heard a sermon on how I shouldn't compromise, I shouldn't give up my mind to idle things, I shouldn't give my heart to idolatrous desires, I shouldn't look at things that I know displease God. Remember, this is the purpose of the gospel. It takes every area of shame and guilt and reminds us, this is how much God loves you. He has paid the price. He has not compromised. And to the cross, all the way to the cross, he has suffered for me. Let me take hold of that salvation. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you, O Lord, for this truth that Jesus foresaw our inability to please you. He foresaw the areas of failure in our lives. And thank you for the fact that he went willingly to the cross to bear the weight of our sin, to wash us, not partially, but to wash us totally white as snow. Father, first I want to pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters and the visitors here in this room. Lord, there are some of us that live under the weight of guilt and regret for having mishandled things in the past, for having damaged relationships, for having not intervened and acted when there was still time to do right. Some of us look on our lives and we think this whole thing just seems like a ginormous, sorry, that's not a real word, seems like a giant mess that I wish I could go back 20 years and redo it all. Lord, we feel like Reuben probably did in saying, woe, woe to me, where will I turn now? If that's you today and you feel like things are a mess in life, can I invite you to come to the cross? Come before the Lord Jesus Christ and to take hold of his sacrifice on your behalf. To once again believe that on the cross, Jesus fully swallowed up sin and death. That Jesus has already pardoned you for those mistakes you have committed and for the trouble and the pain you have caused others. But, oh, folks, let's not stop there. Let's ask the Lord to grow our hearts now to be like that of Jesus Christ, who loved us and had compassion on us in our time of need and gave himself for us. Let us become, O oh Lord, an attentive people that recognize when you put us in a situation where we can stand for you, when you put us in a moment during the day to be faithful to you, when you put us in a relation to be a peacemaker. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to not trade away our integrity. Help us not to give in to this sinful impulse and desire and to do what comes naturally and easily to us, but instead to see, Lord, here and now, you're giving me a chance to trust in you. Father, help us to walk the narrow road and to put to death the own, our own self, to crucify the old self, that we would live for Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those here with broken relations and they have hurt people and they can't take it back and, and it seems like there's no way back. Father, give them faith that there is no relation too tangled for you to sort through. Father, give them vision on how to reconcile, how to be pardoned, how to ask for forgiveness. Father, I pray for people right now that are going through a tense moment in life where there are big decisions to make. Lord, I pray that you would help them in this moment to be aware of their need for you. They need your strengthening. They need that conviction that only comes from you, Lord, to do what is right and pleasing to you. Father, I pray for those that are going through a wilderness journey. Maybe they feel like they're on this long trek to Shechem and they've gotten there and they're looking around, why am I here, Lord, and where am I headed? Or maybe they feel like they've already been bound up and they're being brought back to Egypt. Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that they would turn their eyes to you and say, Lord, despite how hard it is to be in this place where I am at, that I trust you and that I will still continue to seek you and to rejoice in you. 
For you, O Lord, even as we read in Psalm 90, you, O Lord, are my portion, the everlasting God, the faithful one that never abandons and never compromises. Father, bring us to that place of trust and faith this day. Father, I pray for anyone here today that has not yet found you and not yet taken hold of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their lives. If you're here today and you have no idea how your heavenly Father, how God would receive you on the day that you pass, if you fear that he would bring to account your past failures and your past life, know that Jesus says that if anyone were to come to him, that he will give this abundant eternal life, that they will never thirst again, that they will find full satisfaction in him. Jesus offers you new life if you would turn and trust in him fully. Father, as we go from this place and move on in worship, we ask, O oh Lord, that your spirit would not cease to work in our lives. Father, illuminate in our lives those prideful, smug, self-satisfied areas of life where we feel like we've got this on our own. We're happy with what we have, where we don't need to be taught. And Father, break us of that attitude. Help us to repent, Father, of those areas. Lord, help me to repent of those areas where I am compromising as a son of yours, as a minister, as a neighbor, as a dad, as a father, or sorry, as a husband. Father, do a work in me that this week, Father, I'd be able to look back and rejoice. Oh, Lord, you have been faithful to lead me as my shepherd. Thank you, O oh Lord, for fortifying my hand. And Lord, we praise you that we believe that you are the one that is able by your spirit to cause us to bear the fruit, not by our own strength of conviction, but by the faithfulness of your own character. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. <laughs>